personally think that that was my moment of salvation. I'd already chosen Christ, and but I had said in the next invitation that, that there is, I'm going forward in it. And we had a chapel service in our school that back then, and a fellow that got up, his name was Stuart Durstock, got up and preached, and he always gave an invitation after the end of the message. But on that day, he said, I don't know why, but I'm not going to give an invitation today. And I was sitting there thinking, Lord, I finally got to this place, and you're not going to let me make my decision for you. And uh, he said, but I do want you to bow your heads. And he asked us to bow our heads. And so he said, if, there's, if God spoke to your heart, if, if there's something going on in your heart, he said, would you just raise your hand? I'm going to pray for you. And boy, my hand went up in the air, you know, 13 years old. I'm thankful that about an hour later, after we'd gone back to class, Brother Durstock came and knocked on our door. He said, I'd like to see Greg if I could. And Brother Durstock was our school principal, and you did not want him to come to your schoolroom and knock on your door and ask for you personally. And I thought, what have I done now? And I go down to his office, and he said, Greg, he said, I, I couldn't help but notice you raised your hand in the invitation. He said, I've been sitting here in my office. He said, I keep getting this idea that I need to call you out of class and see if there's something you need. I'm thankful that Brother Durstock was sensitive to what God had for him that day. I said, Brother Durstock, I'm not saved. I need to trust Christ as my Savior. I said, I know I'm a sinner. I know that there's nothing I can do to save myself, and I need to be saved. I want to put my faith in the Lord Jesus today. And he said, Greg, you know how to do that? And I said, yes, sir, I understand. I just got to put my faith in Him. And he said, would you like to like to pray about it? And I said, yes, sir, I would. He said, do you want your dad to come down and pray with you about it? I said, yes, sir, that'd be great. I'll never forget kneeling down in that chair in his office and my dad coming in the door. We knelt there. And at that moment, I prayed and I said, Lord, I want to trust you to take me to heaven, to forgive me of my sin, because I can't do it. I'm not going to make it if I trust myself. Oh, I was so overjoyed and thrilled that day. And I'll tell you, something changed. Something changed that day. It's never been the same. I'm not going to tell you that there's not been problems in my life. Those people that know me know there's been some dark valleys. The song Brother David sang, Hidden Valleys. I think many of you know what that's like. Whether you've trusted Christ as your Savior or not, I think we can all relate to valleys in our lives. I'm thankful we have a Savior that when we trust Him as our Savior, He walks along beside us. He gives us grace for the journey, comfort where it's needed. I was listening to a fellow preach. Actually, he wasn't preaching. He was answering some questions for some folks here a few months ago. And um, he had shared the fact that when God created Adam and Eve, He had created them perfect, put them in the garden. And He gave them a choice. He said, you can eat of all the trees of the garden except for one. And he gave them a choice to either obey him or, or to not obey him. And, of course, we know the story. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And when they disobeyed God, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so he was telling these people, he said, everybody sinned. In fact, the Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. 
In Romans chapter 3, verse number 23, a very famous verse says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The only one that I know in this room that's come close to not sinning, but he still sins, is Brother Waymire. And uh, we all have sinned. Brother Oates, Brother Kenny. I know Brother Kenny has. I'll tell you this. The one that I think is the chiefest sinner is this guy right here. And by the way, God has a way of showing you that too. And I know that I deserve God's judgment. I don't question that. I don't even know that I needed the Bible to tell me that I deserve God's judgment. I think I would have known that. Because I've sinned. And you're looking at a fellow that deserves hell. And every time you look in the mirror, you look at a fellow that deserves hell. That's what we deserve. In fact, in John chapter 3, in verse number 17, verse number 18, the Bible says that he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not is on the Son is condemned already is the way it's worded. I don't know if I quoted it correctly, but the idea is that, that we're condemned already. Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. We were already on our way to hell. The whole reason He came was because He loved you. If you had been the only sinner in this world, He would have come just for you. So this fellow was sharing all this with these people. He shared how that there are people that have trusted Christ as their Savior, and now they're in heaven. He took some questions, and a lady asked, raised her hand and said, I don't quite understand all this. She said, you're telling us, and, and, and he had made the statement, he said that in order to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. I remember hearing him say that, and I thought, I don't know that I agree with that. You have to be perfect. But then he went on, and I, and I want you to follow me on this. He said, God, in His holiness, demands perfection. You can't even have a little white lie and make it to heaven. There's not a big scale where your good has to outweigh your bad. There is a justice system that God put in place that if there is any sin, even one, you're not going. And God's justice demands perfection. The lady said, I don't understand. You said that everybody has sinned. He said, that's right. She said, even you've sinned. He said, absolutely, I've sinned. We're not perfect. Absolutely, we're not perfect. But there are people in heaven? Yes, there are people in heaven. She said, how do you explain that? He said, easy. Grace. Because Jesus was sent to this earth 2,000 years ago for the entire purpose of taking your place in the punishment for your sin. He did it so that you wouldn't have to pay for your sin. And then He gives it to us freely. The one who lived a perfect life and took our punishment for sin he didn't commit, but we did, has a record 
before God that is a perfect record. And you know what He does with that record when we trust Him? When we put our faith in Him? He takes His record, this perfection, and He gives it to you. And guess what? Now you can go to heaven. But not without perfection. It's not our perfection. But it's the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't force anybody to do it. Any more than He forced Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He gave them a choice. I was talking to someone the other day. And the truth is this. The moment we are born, we become an eternal being. Whether you choose to trust Christ as your Savior, or whether you choose to die in your sin and suffer the punishment that the Bible says a just God has to demand, He has to. He's just. He's holy. It would not be fair if God allowed sin into heaven. He must judge it. And so He does. For those that decide they're not going to choose Him and put their faith in Him, He judges them. He has to. And those that decide they don't want to trust Him as their Savior, to lean upon Him completely and wholly for their salvation, they will spend an eternity somewhere. And that place, the Bible tells us, is a place of eternal punishment. God doesn't make the choice for us. God doesn't force us. He allows each and every one of us to make our own choice. You get to choose. You get to either say, Lord, I want to trust You to give me Your perfection. In fact, the book of Hebrews, chapter number 7, says that He is the surety of the new covenant. You know what that means? He's the guarantor of it. I have I have three kids. Two of my two of my kids are daughters. Both of them have bought cars when they were young. And when we went there, they had good credit, but they didn't have a credit history. And you know what they told her when they went to get financing? They said, "You need to have a co-signer." Well, Dad's sitting right there, and they look at me with those little puppy dog eyes. You know, they're my daughters. I love them with all my heart, and I'm not going to tell them no. So two times now, I've destroyed my credit by co-signing for them. And you know what I was doing when I said that? I was saying, if my daughter cannot keep her agreement with you, then I will take the responsibility for it and put that on my account. I will pay it. Can I tell you this, that when God died, when Jesus died on Calvary, a new covenant was made, a promise, a guarantee between a holy God who has no sin and sinful man who has by nature a sinful condition. In fact, we are so prone to sinning that the title, the name that is given to us is Sinner. You find somebody that knows how to do plumbing, and that's what they specialize in, that's what they're good at, and they do it for their life's calling. You would call them a plumber. 
because it's what they know, it's what they're best at, it's what they are naturally inclined to. Can I tell you this? The reason we're called sinners is because that's what we're prone to. That's what we're best at. And so God makes a covenant. He says, if you will obey me and follow me, I will be your God and you will be my child. It's a similar covenant to one he made with the children of Israel. Here's the problem. God will always keep his end of the covenant. Let me help you with something else. We will always break our end of the covenant. You know what the penalty for breaking a covenant is? Death. And so Jesus, our high priest, steps in. And He stands on our side of the covenant as our advocate. And He says, When Greg breaks covenant with you, Father, I'll put that on my account. And the penalty that that took, I already paid it. And when Satan tries to accuse us before the Father, I'm thankful we have an advocate. He steps forward and says, Yes, Greg is guilty. Yes, he deserves hell, but I already paid for it. Oh, what a joy. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote this in verse number 8. He says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's some people who think, well, I'll do my best. I'll go to church or I'll... I'll, I'll live a good life. If I can do good enough, I'll make it to heaven. Most people I ask, I say, when I ask them, I'll say, uh, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Or something to that effect. You know what most of the time I get the answer is? I sure hope so. What do you mean you hope so? How do you go to heaven? Well, I try to live good. I try to be decent. And I have to take them to Scripture. And I have to show them from Ephesians. That's not the way to get to heaven. When Jesus was on this earth, He taught His disciples. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. You say, Pastor, that's, that's a very narrow view. I understand that. Salvation is a very narrow truth. Only those that put their faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them on Calvary will have that perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ placed on their account and the doors of heaven will swing open wide for them. So then the question is, what's this thing called faith? How do, how do I put my faith in it? I've used this illustration a few times. I'm embarrassed to say it. In case you haven't noticed, I'm not the most athletically inclined physique. I'm a little bit what we call heavy. I... Uh, I weigh 300 pounds. A few years ago, I went over to a friend of mine's house. His name's Adnan Reckick, and they invited me over on the 4th of July for a picnic. And I went over there. He was barbecuing out in the backyard, and they had these plastic lawn chairs. And uh, the guy that invented those should be put on trial. But I sat down in that. He said, to have a seat. I sat down there. We're talking. And about two or three minutes later, after I sat there, I heard a loud crack. And the next thing I know, I'm laying on the ground. Chair had broken. And I thought, 
How embarrassing. You know, here I'm at my friend's house. His kids are there. His wife's there. Their family's there. Their in-laws are there. And here I am, this fat guy that broke their chair. I, I'm, I'm real careful now. My son and I went to uh, the Blue Owl a few weeks ago. It's a nice outdoor venue type thing, a patio area you could sit at. And they said, you want to sit inside or outside? And it was a nice weather day, and I thought, well, I'd like to sit outside. And I looked, walked out there, and I saw the chairs, and they had those same plastic chairs. I said, ma'am, this isn't going to work. I said, I need you to go inside and grab another chair and bring it out here, because I can't sit in this chair. Well, he said, why not? I said, I don't trust it. It's failed me. And we come in here tonight. Believe it or not, you've already put your faith in something this evening. When you walked up here, you plopped down in that chair. Most of you didn't even give it another thought. You didn't look at the chair. You didn't examine it. I didn't see any of you turn it upside down and make sure it's still going to hold you. You know what you did? You just went back and you put your faith in that chair. Basically, what you were saying was this. If that chair is not what it says it is, if that chair doesn't do what it's supposed to do, then I'm going to go to the ground because that's all I'm trusting to keep me from falling. And there's a lot of people that will come in here and they may look at that chair and say, well, I believe that chair can hold me. In fact, if I had one up here, I'd probably demonstrate it. I'd probably look at it. I'd probably hold it. I could even touch it. I could look at the metal and I could say, boy, this is a strong chair. This, this chair can hold me. I believe with all of my heart this chair can hold me. But I haven't trusted it yet, have I? You know, there's a lot of people who believe in God. There's a lot of people that are very religious. But they've not put their faith their absolute 100% without reservation dependence on going to heaven on what the Lord Jesus Christ has already done for them. They've not trusted Him. They may believe that He can save them, but that's not the same. The Bible says that the devils believe doesn't mean they're saved. All of us know that point, don't we? We, sit and we stand in front of a chair... We look at it maybe, or we'll, we'll make sure we're in the right location, the right place for it. We start to sit, and you know, even as we bend down, there's still a place where if we needed to, we could catch ourselves. And you know, a lot of, Christ, a lot of people in this world will get that close to being saved. They may go to church, they may hear a gospel message like you've heard tonight, and they may say, I want to be saved. I believe Jesus can save me but they've not made that decision to put their absolute dependence and faith on Him. And we all have that place where we get really, really close. But then there comes that moment. And we all know where it is, don't we? Some of us, it comes before others. And that's when our center of gravity, our mass, exceeds our balance. And we are going either into the chair or on the ground, and there is no other choice. Can I tell you this? I use that illustration to say this. As surely and as absolutely and without reservation as you sat down tonight, without questioning, without even wondering, is this chair going to hold me? It's the same kind of faith you need to have in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. He's paid your debt for you. He offers it to you freely. And the only thing He asks is that you put your faith in that and say, Lord, that's what I'm trusting I certainly can't trust me. 
I will break covenant with God every time. I will sin every time. But I can sure trust what Jesus has done for me. I can put my faith in Him and let that be the reason I'm going to heaven and not because of my goodness. I'm thankful I'm saved tonight, aren't you? I'm thankful we have a Savior and a God who loved us that much. It was bad enough He had to come pay for our sin. I will hold co-signing for my daughters over their heads the rest of their lives. Every birthday, every Christmas, hey, who co-signed for you? Who co-signed for you? Jesus doesn't do that. He gave it to us without reservation, without question, says it's yours for the taking. Oh, what a Savior. What a Savior. Oh, that's not even the message tonight. Are you all ready? Are we warmed up yet? Second Timothy chapter 3. I hope and pray. Folks, I mean this with all my heart. My prayer is that every person in here has trusted Christ as their Savior. If you have not, can I plead with you do that? Do it before it's too late. Because you're an eternal being. You don't just die and go into the grave and it's over. You're going to spend an eternity somewhere. Why not choose Jesus? Why not choose Heaven? I've done a lot of funerals for people who... Pardon me. I should have had that turned off. I do a lot of funerals for folks that have asked me. They're not part of our church. They've asked me to come do the funeral. I've gone to their bedsides. I've gone to their homes. And I've sat there. And I've heard of the children and the grandchildren, sometimes the parents, say, well, we know they're in heaven. Well, I sure can't wait till we get there too. Can I tell you this? Not everybody goes to heaven. Only those that have trusted Him. I, I, folks, I would plead with you. I, if there was something I could do to get you to make that decision, I would do it. But it's got to be your choice. God doesn't force you. I'll tell you this greatest decision you'll ever make in your life. Your life won't be perfect. It won't be a bed of roses. But all of a sudden you'll have a Savior that walks with you. So let the storm clouds rise. The dark clouds rise. They don't worry me. For I'm sheltered safe within the arms of God. Doesn't matter if the valleys come. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. I came across that phrase a number of years ago when I was going through a dark valley. I said, Lord, I've got to have some relief. I don't know what I'm going to do. And that phrase, He restoreth my soul, came into my heart. And I thought, boy, what a, what a thought. In the darkest days, God restores us. I don't know why I'm not in this lesson yet, but we're getting there, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm not usually one to chase a rabbit hole or beat around the bush, but I will do my best to be brief and yet due diligence. I know you've had a big meal. It's getting later, and I will try to get you out here in a timely manner. Verse number 3, This know also, in the last days, perilous times shall come. 
For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Well, that's a phrase, isn't it? If you have a pen, you ought to underline that one. It describes very clearly our present day. Traitors, petty, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men and there, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions which came unto me at Antioch, Iconium, at Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Father, I pray for the next few moments that you will take apart any distractions that may come into our hearts or minds. Lord, there's no doubt as we came in here this evening, there are concerns of this world that weighed heavy upon us, burdens that we brought in here with us. May for the next few moments you help us to put our minds off of those things and put them on your word. May your Holy Spirit guide and direct us. Lord, give us the clarity of thought, the clarity of speech. Above all, speak to hearts outward or inwardly as we preach or teach outwardly. Lord, that which cannot be done through preaching and pulpiting, may Your Holy Spirit do that transforming work through the truth of Your Word in the hearts of those that are here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse number 13, the Bible says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And there's no doubt that we're living in perilous times. There's no doubt that this world, the Bible teaches us, waxes worse and worse. Sin is rampant in our world. It seems to be growing at, a, at an alarming rate. The acceptance of sin, the, and not even the acceptance anymore, but now the celebration of sin, the promotion of sin, the, 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 the flaunting of sin is quickly uh, eroding into our societies and into our culture. Satan is ravaging the lives of people and destroying homes and marriages. He's destroying men. He's destroying women and children. Sometimes even at ages before they've even had a chance to set out in life, their life is already wrecked and ruined because of the ravages of Satan and sin. Our society is reeling from the, 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 uh, the, the sinful mindset and the condition of uh, that which is right and that which is uh, good being called evil and that which is evil being called good. 
And we're, we're prone to look at these things. And if you watch news and you're, you're aware of these things in life, it's easy for you and I to begin to, to say, boy, there's a, there's a lot going on in this world, and this world is a mess. By the way, can I help you with something? The answer to it's never going to be found in Washington, D.C. I don't care if you get the most godly Christian men in Washington, D.C., it is not government's responsibility for the, for the, uh, the uh, morality, the spiritual morality of a nation. The morality of a nation is going to be as our pulpits are lit on fire with the power of God's Holy Spirit when the Bible begins to be preached in our pulpits once again. And that's a novel thought. And yet, it seems like in the day we live, more and more preachers are departing from preaching the Bible. They'll get up and they'll say, I think this and I think that. Or they'll say, I believe this or I believe that. Why not get up and say, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. Let this book be our authority. It is, after all, God's Word to man. We believe it to be true, every word of it, without error. We find that this this society, this world is going this way. Notice the description, if you will, of these men. The Bible says in verse number 2, it says that in these these last days, and the Bible refers to them as perilous times. Do you notice that? I want you to notice this. And keep that thought in mind for a minute. Perilous times. And then he goes on to describe these perilous times. <clears throat> he says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now we're going to find in verse number 2 the inward character of a man. Alright? They're looking inwardly. This is what makes them up. Now, by the way, there are three things that make every one of us up. What we know, what we do, and what we are. And here's the problem. We focus so much on what we know and what we do. In fact, a lot of our preaching in our pulpits today is on, boy, you need to know this or you need to do this. And we have less and less preaching on, you need to be this. The Bible says that we might grow in the inner man, that there be a, a strengthening of the inner man, that there be a, 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 the, the work of the transforming work of the Bible and the Holy Spirit in the inner man. The thing that makes us up, our character, if you will. This is a men's meeting. They're, they're, the character of men has deteriorated over the years. I, I love uh, reading history, and I remember uh, reading of some of the accounts on the Titanic when it fell. And the cry uh, on that day on the deck of the Titanic was, Women and children were first. And they would, many times, men would walk up and kiss their wives and kiss their children and put them on the lifeboats and walk back onto the deck knowing that they were going to die. There was a steward that manned one of the lifeboats that survived that ordeal and was interviewed by a news reporter a few months afterwards. And they said, Sir, we hear that the cry on the deck was women and, women and children first. And the, the reporter asked him this question. said, Was that the law of the captain or the law of the sea? And the steward looked at the reporter and said, Sir, that's just the law of nature. Men need to be men. God fashioned us, God made us to be the protectors of those that are weaker than us, our women and our children, our wives, and those that God has entrusted us with as children. We need to be men. We need to have that character, that backbone, once again, to stand for something. And not just any something, but in in the light of eternity, we need to stand for the truth of God's Word. Because our society, our culture, is going to continue to get worse and worse unless there's a revival in the hearts of men. To stand up and say, I'm going to be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain 
in the Lord. We need some men to rise up and be the heads of their homes once again. We need some men to rise up and be the heads of their societies once again. We need some men to stand up and say, I'm not going to do what I think is right. I'm going to do what the Bible tells me is right. And I'm not going to just uh, keep out of my life the things that I think are wrong, but I'm going to keep out of my life and I'm going to uh, abstain from and I'm going to eschew and I'm going to hate those things that the Bible says I ought to stay away from. The things I think I ought to, uh, the things the Bible says I ought to uh, hate and not uh, love. I love what is said of Job when Jesus, or when God was speaking to Satan. And he says, Hast thou considered my servant Job? He called him an up, a man that was upright, one that loved God and eschewed evil. He hated it, the very thought of evil. Job hated evil so much that he even made sacrifices on behalf of his children just in case his children had sinned. That's how much Job hated him. And I tell you this, there needs to be revival among men in this world today to say we're going to be men of God. We're going to be men who hold to the Scriptures. If God says it's right, then it's right. End of discussion. If God says it's wrong, then it's wrong. End of discussion. We don't need to sit and debate it on Facebook. We just simply need to proclaim it to a world that needs to hear it. This is the description of these men. Notice verse number 5. This, this group of men, that they're, they're so described here. It says they having a form of godliness. Can I tell you this? It could even be men that on the outside seem to be religious. Verse 2 deals with his inner character. He's, he loves himself. He's covetous. He's a boaster. He's proud. He's disobedient to parents. He's unthankful. He's unholy. He's covetous. It's all egocentric, self-centered, pride, ego, egocentric. Verse 3 is the result of this, the outward working of this condition. It says, without natural affection. There's nothing about their affections that are natural. In fact, before the days of the flood and Noah, the Bible says that the imaginations of the hearts of men back then were only evil continually. They didn't even have the ability to have natural affections. Their affections are so tainted with sin. This is the outward condition of their prideful and egocentric and self-centered that they believe they are their own God. By the way, can I help you with something here? There's a group of folks that are in this word of faith and uh, prosperity preaching out there. And I've, I've, got the, I've watched the clips. I've heard them say it. They're out there teaching, you are God's. And they'll say it's a little g, but you're gods. You know what there is? There's, there's, a, there's a marked effort in religion. Now, I'm not talking about in Bible truth, but I'm talking about in religious groups. There's a, a concerted effort to deify man and to humanize God because they are trying in their own efforts to begin to have an equal level with God so they can commune with Him. Can I tell you this? I'm always going to be a sinner. He is always going to be holy. And the only way I have communion with Him is when Jesus Christ gives me His perfect record and reconciles me to God. That is the only way. God doesn't answer to me. I don't have authority over Him. I don't demand Him to do things. I bow in humble obedience and say, Lord, not my will, but Thy will be done. But these men, they're without natural affection. They're truce breakers. They're false accusers. They're, they're, they're dishonest. 
They're incontinent. This idea of incontinence means they're not able to restrain their sensual lusts. They don't even have the capability to. They don't rein it in. Fierce. Doesn't that not uh, mention the, the, the society we're living in today? These folks that hate God, despise them, they're fierce. Despisers of those that are good. They hate those that are good. By the way, a lot of what's going on in politics today is not between uh, ideological differences. It's between those that are good and those that are evil. And those that are evil hate those that are good. They despise them. And the, 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 the animosity and the friction that's there is not just a, a disagreement on ideas. It's, a, it's an absolute hatred towards that which is good. Verse number 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Notice what the Bible says here, from such turn away. Can I tell you this? The perilous times are not because our world is changing. The perilous times are not because society is making new laws. The perilous times are because there are ungodly men. It's the ungodly men that make the times perilous. It's their character it's their pursuit of fleshly lust and worldliness that brings the perilous times. Notice what it says here in verse number 6, For of this sort are they which, notice this word, creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Can I tell you, this sort are those that do so secretly and with deceit and trying not to get caught in what they're doing. They don't want it to become uh, public. They don't want it to be seen. They're, they're creeping around trying to accomplish these things. They're hiding things. By the way, sin is always something that will cause men to try to hide. You remember when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden? And after they had sinned, the Bible says that God came down in the cool of the day and he calls out to them and says, Adam, can I help you with something? We all understand here tonight that God knew exactly where Adam was. Why did he call Adam? Because he wanted Adam to know where Adam was. He wanted Adam to see, I'm hiding from God. Something is broken here. The relationship that he and I had, it's, it's gone. That's why he did that. By the way, that's the condition we're in before we get saved. These are those that creep into houses. He uses an illustration here in verse number 8 of two folks that withstood Moses, Janus and Jambres. He says, So do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no farther for, farther, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men. Can I help you with something here? <clears throat> Whether you choose to be saved and trust Christ as your Savior and be saved from the punishment of your sin, or whether you choose to reject what God has done for you, the great love that He's had for you, and you say, I'd rather suffer my penalty for my sin. Regardless of what choice you make, one day it will all be laid bare and open before men and before God. There is coming a day where every man is going to stand and give account. 
There's going to come a day where even people who deny the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Philippians chapter 2, that every single knee is going to bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen. Here's the problem. And as we look at the problem, our tendency is to focus on it and say, boy, our world is sure in a mess. Boy, we sure got a lot of problems, and we do. But can I, I want to charge you with something. This is the message. We're not, I, the message is not where, where our world is. I think we know where that is. Here's the problem. We tend to focus more on the world that's around us than the God that is over us. Because even though this world waxes worse and worse, in verse number 9, I want you to notice with me and look with me and read this, if you will. I'm sorry, verse number 13, excuse me. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And oftentimes we quote that verse, we say that verse, but I want you to read the next verse because here's where our message begins. Here's where our charge tonight to men is. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them. It is simple for you and I to get, get our eyes off of the things that we ought to be focusing on, uh, the Lord Jesus and this book. In fact, the Bible tells us the Apostle Paul told Timothy, he said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a good soldier. And so many, often, so many times we are uh, entangled again in the things of this world. Paul charges folks in the, in the church, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. If you've got your Bibles handy, hold your place here in 2 Timothy. But I want us to look at another passage in Romans chapter number 11, if you will. And if we're not careful, we'll do a lot like Elijah did. If you'll remember the story of Elijah back in the Old Testament. Elijah chapter, or Elijah chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, in verse number 2. The Bible says uh, this. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Did I get the right verse? Yes, here we go. Uh, verse number two. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not that the Scripture saith of Elias? Now, that's the New Testament word for Elijah, in case you were wondering. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars. Notice this phrase. And I am left alone, and they seek my life. <clears throat> if we're not careful, we'll get this mindset that Elijah did, that, Lord, our world's in a mess, and I seem to be the only one that cares. I seem to be the only one that's given, given a hoot about this whole thing, and I'm the only one that seems to have any kind of concern about it. But, oh, I'll tell you, Lord, I'm getting kind of discouraged down here all by myself. Wait a minute. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 4. But what saith the answer of God unto him? Now this is what God told Elijah. I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Now Elijah says to the Lord, he says, they have slain the prophets. But I want you to notice what, Jesus, what God tells him in verse number 4. He says, I... Have reserved. Can I tell you this? First of all, 
You need to know God. God has a plan for your life. He says, I have reserved to myself 7,000, what's the next three-letter word? Not prophets, not preachers, not missionaries, men. We need to have some men that are set, about, set aside by God for God. He said, I have set 7,000 men aside for myself. There's a small group of men here tonight, but this world could literally be flipped upside down with the group of men who would say, I've been called by God, and I want to do God's purposes, and I will yield myself completely to His will. So let's look back in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, <coughs> in verse number 14, says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. What should we do in response to these perilous times? The world needs a remnant of men who are God-called, who believe the truth of God's Word and stand for the truth of God's Word and will proclaim the truth of God's Word without doubt, without, without fear, without confusion, without watering it down, without trying to, to be politically correct. I will tell you this, I don't think you need to go out here and belligerently try to be offensive to people. But folks, don't water down the truth of God's Word either. It is possible to be steadfast and unmovable and bold and still be gracious. There is still the idea that kindness can still be shown in declaring truth. There's come a time in the last 20, 30 years it's kind of given Christians a bad name. We thought either somebody was too weak-kneed and liberal to speak the truth, or if they, if they were somebody who stood for the truth, that they had to make somebody mad or they weren't doing a good enough job at it. And I tell you this, that's nowhere in my Scriptures. The Bible says we're to speak the truth in love, boldly, clearly, but with a heart of love. When I tell somebody the Gospel story, I don't tell them that in a judgmental way. I say that in a way of pleading with them, because my heart yearns for them to be saved. To trust Christ as their Savior. I don't say that as a judgmental man. I am a sinner myself. But for the grace of God, I wouldn't go to heaven. There needs to be a solid foundation of men that rise up and say, we will not bow the knee. We will stand firm on God's Word. Notice as Paul gives some instruction about how we're to go about this, in verse number 10, he gives a list of some things. And I want you to notice this list that Paul gives. <coughs> he says, but thou hast fully known my, what's the first one here? My doctrine. Well, you better know your Bible. You better know it. This is God's Word to us. He gave it to us for two reasons. One, to show us how to go to heaven when, when we die. The second reason is how to live between the time we trust Him as our Savior and the time we go to heaven. And we ought to follow it implicitly. We ought to follow it without reservation, without question. We ought to follow it as the truth of God Himself. Paul says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose. By the way, you better know your purpose. Faith, long-suffering, notice this, charity, patience. Paul, of all people, was bold, was he not? 
And yet he had long-suffering, he had patience, he had charity. Notice the difference between the ungodly man that creates the perilous times. They're the kind that go around and they creep. They're deceitful. They're in hiding. They're, they're trying, to, trying to do things without getting caught. Notice what Paul says. Thou hast fully known my doctrine. I'm a wide open book. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could live in such submission to God's Word that we could open our hearts up and let everybody who wants to see them and say, I have nothing to be ashamed of. There's some sin there. I'm not proud of it. But I'm thankful God's forgiven it. And from this time on, I've been striving with my utmost diligence, my utmost zeal to be pleasing to Him. And while I may fail, my heart's desire is to do His will. And Paul said, Thou hast fully known. I'm not trying to hide it. He said, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, persecutions, afflictions which came unto me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Oh, what a wonderful truth. The end of the matter is found in verse number 17. Verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. There's a colon there, and anytime you see a colon, it is putting the focus on the statement that's coming after it. It's, it's putting the magnifying glass on it, if you will. And so we find that the, the, the idea of Scripture being by inspiration of God. It's not by the will of man. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And, and not, uh, it was not of any private interpretation. It wasn't their own thoughts. It was inspired literally every word of it by the Holy Spirit of God. He says, All Scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness. And then he puts the spotlight on it, the magnifying glass. And he says, because of this, and, and, and this is the source of it, that the man of God, by the way, what a title. What a title. There could be no greater epitaph put on your tombstone than man of God. That the man of God may be perfect. Now, don't misconstrue this perfect with the perfect we were talking about earlier. Because when the King's English was written in 1611, the idea of perfect was an idea of maturing or completing or growth. In fact, it's interesting that oftentimes when we try to look at our churches and find out <coughs> if we're a successful church, we use three measurements, none of which are found in Scripture. We look at our attendance, we look at our buildings, and we look at our offerings. And we say, boy, if those are growing, we're successful in ministry. That is never the measure of success of a ministry. Those may happen to a ministry that is doing well, but those are never the measure. What is the measure? Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 11. And God gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Purpose of a church? The measurement of a successful church are the people that are under the preaching of that gospel in that church maturing? Are they growing? We don't like to use that measurement because it doesn't always reflect in numbers. 
It doesn't always reflect in offerings. It doesn't always reflect in buildings. And it takes a lot of time to see the final product. That the man of God may be perfect. We're not there, but we ought to be striving for it this side of heaven. Every day I want to do better at following the Lord Jesus. Every day I want to look at the day before and say, Lord, here's how I failed you. (coughs) I want to learn from it. I want to do better. That's maturing. That's growing day by day. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. This is the kind of man God wants you to be. A man that is perfect, maturing, truly equipped unto all good works. There's five things I'm going to give you just quickly. We'll be out of here at least by 12 o'clock. Here they are. I'm going to give them to you in rapid fire succession. Verse number 15. First of all, it's going to require you to know God. If you don't know Him, you're never going to be this kind of man. Look in verse number 15. The Bible says this, And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Romans says this, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Paul said it this way. He said, I had not known, had there not been the law. I would have known I needed a Savior. I would have known salvation, had it not been for this. If this book hadn't told me I was a sinner, I would have never known I needed a Savior. You need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You need to have put your faith and your trust in Him. You need to be depending (coughs) upon Him without reservation and without any part of yourself playing a role in it to take you to heaven when you die. Number two. It's going to require persistence. Look number verse number 14. Paul says this to young Timothy. He says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13, it says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Paul told Timothy, he said, Yea, and all that shall live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's going to come. You need to learn to be persistent. Persistent. Continue thou. Pursue after it. Make it your lifelong goal. So pursue after Christ. Number three, it's going to require the knowledge of Scripture. In verse number 10, Paul said, Thou hast fully known my doctrine. In verse number um, 15, it says, And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. The Scriptures are where we get our knowledge of what God wants for our lives. If we're going to be this kind of man, a man of God who is perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, we're going to have to be a man who knows our Word, our Bible. I've heard a lot of people who say, well, I just don't know if I like the Bible. And most of them have never read it. 
so many times we worry about the things that we don't understand in Scripture. Maybe they're a little hard for us to understand. We haven't matured enough spiritually to understand them well. You know, the things I find the trouble with is doing the things I do understand in Scripture. Being obedient to that. To surrender my will daily and say, Lord, I've got a will and it wants to go this way. But I want what you want. And you know what the psalmist said? He said, and, and this is it. This really, you, want to, you want to know the secret of the Christian life? If you'll learn this secret, every preacher in the world would be out of, out of a job. Alright? They'd be out of the ministry. Here's the secret. The psalmist said, Oh, that my ways were thy ways. And that is the Christian life. It is a single decision. I'm either going to have my way today or I'm going to seek His way today. Every moment of every day, every decision we make, every sin that we commit comes down to that one choice. We don't fall into sin. I've used that phrase. I've heard others use that phrase. It gives the idea that we're walking along, minding our business, not paying attention, and all of a sudden sin jumps up and bites us. That doesn't happen that way. We choose to sin. Every time. Oh, that my ways were thy ways. That is the battle of every day in the heart of every single one of us men. And I'm pointing at all of us. We all battle that question every day. Every moment of every day. We battle that question. Number four. It's going to require the assurance, the absolute confidence in the truth of the Scriptures. We cannot doubt them. We must not doubt them. <coughs> I was in a, in a funeral a while back. Brother Waymire will know about this a little bit. And the preacher was using a, a text in uh, John chapter 14. In my father's house are many mansions. He said, now that word mansions, it's not the best translation. It should be rooms. No, no. Do we understand this, fellas, that every time we even change one word, in Scripture and say it's not accurate, it's not right, it's not correct. We have just destroyed the very foundation of any truth we claim from its pages. I have to believe that every word in this book came straight from God Himself or I can't stand on any of the truth in it. Anything less becomes man's opinion and no longer God's truth. Oh, that we would learn to have absolute confidence in the truthfulness of Scripture. Number Five, and, and we'll give you one more as a bonus. It's going to require men who not only know the truth and have confidence in the truth, but men who will live the truth. Verse number 17, Paul said that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished. Notice this. We are to be matured. We are to be truly furnished for a purpose. And that purpose is unto all good works. <coughs> not enough to know the Bible. Remember at the beginning of the message, I said there's three things that make up every one of us. What we know, what we do, and what we are. A lot of people know things. They are not what they should be in here. And because of that, they do not do what they know to be right. If we're going to be men that are these kind of men in verse 17, the men of God that Paul speaks of, we're going to have to make sure that we live the truth of God's Word. 
And I would say this lastly, it's going to require patience in persecution. It's going to come. You're going to get ridiculed. There's going to come times where you don't feel like serving God. There's going to come times where it's going to be hard to serve God. You've got to be patient through that. Notice in verse number 11, the Apostle Paul said this. He's speaking of things that have happened to him, persecutions, afflictions that came unto me in Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions, and I want you to notice these two words, and if you underline stuff in your Bible, underline these two words. These persecutions, he says, I endured. Don't give up at the first rocky road in your life. I was sharing with Brother Chamberlain and down at the table, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not proud of this moment in my life, but I'm going to tell you and just be transparent with you, it happened. In one of the very dark times of my life, I remember sitting in my, in my living room, and the thought came to mind, and it was this, Lord, after all I've done for You, why am I going through this valley? And if this is the way it's going to be, do I want to continue doing this? And that temptation came. And boy, in just a moment, in just that quick of a moment, my heart was convicted. And I thought, how arrogant of me to think that God owes me anything. Can I tell you this? I'm thankful God loves me. But God does not owe me a thing. In fact, the exact opposite of that is true. I owe Him everything. We don't serve God because we're building up some kind of an account of things that God owes us for. We serve God because we love Him for what He's done for us. The Apostle Paul said it this way, The love of Christ constraineth me. I don't serve God now because I have to. I serve God now because I love Him for all that He has done for me. You say, but Brother Greg, haven't you been through some horrible times in your life? Yes, I have. And I can still say with joy in my heart, praise God for all that He has done for me. What a joy. We need some men of God. We need some men that will yield themselves completely without reservation and say, Lord, not my will, but Thy will. I want to be perfect. I want to be truly furnished. And I want to serve You with these good works that You've talked about. I want to do everything I can to point men to You. Let's stand, shall we, together with heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to be real frank with you. I, there's not a thing I can say. There's not a thing I can say tonight that can change your heart 